This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. Hand in hand with FX Guide, our training site FXPHD allows you to do online training with the benefit of industry professionals to guide you. This new April term includes training in Nuke 7, Hero, Editing, Grading, Lens Tech, and even Maths for VFX. Check it all out at fxphd.com. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we're going to be covering, well, a whole range of stuff from ND adapter adapters to um, incredibly funky old lenses to how to write a script to people who basically are just doing the coolest YouTube videos in the history of mankind, and I, and I really actually kind of mean that, um, and the sad passing of an old friend. But uh, we'll do listen a whole bunch more here at the RC Podcast, because we see our role here is to mine the news, filter the blogs, go through all the stuff that we go through, and of course, enjoy some of those serious, now quite famous rat holes, because this is the camera tech and stuff that uh, Jason and I are discussing, obsessing about, arguing about, and quite often trying to work out. And of course, uh, Jason is uh, this week on the line, as Hello. always. Jason, how are you? Welcome. Calling to you from the ISS. No. No? If yes. Only. That so would that's be what awesome. we're referring to. We're referring to, you guys must have seen this by now, by the time this, uh, it just happened about an hour ago before we record. Um, uh, I think it's Commander, anyway, astronaut um, Chris Hadfield uh, recorded David Bowie's um, Space Oddity in the... Um, International Space Station, while in zero gravity, did a film clip. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out on YouTube. I would not be one to push you towards uh, stupid cat videos. This is not a stupid cat video, nor is this... I'd like to see one from the ISS. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Nor is this one of those videos that you go, you've got to see this because it's just so, you know, mad and stupid. Yeah. This is actually just, you know, especially if you're kind of, I don't know, my age, I guess have a real reverence for the space program and this is somebody who just genuinely just seems to you know be doing this heartfelt and it's touching to watch i've heard grown guys so they actually teared up while watching it it's uh i I watch it go past often the um i think there's a there's a cool i'm trying to get the app i was trying to look up the app i'm using uh iss spotter Oh, really? Um, is an app that just sort of leave tra- live. I'm sure there's lots of them, but uh, real time tracking. And uh, I think also NASA have, I think if you Google something called Spot the Station, you can give them your email address and where you live, and it'll just ping you like, you know, 12 hours or so before when it's going to do a flyover. So it's kind of cool. Doesn't matter. Never gets old going out there in the middle of the night or five o'clock in the morning. And no, I'm hey. sorry, I, I need I need that again. I've got ISS Spotter, but what was the ISS other thing? ISS Spotter is the iPhone app. Yeah, no, I've got that. Yeah, uh, and I think there's some service from NASA called Spot the Station. Uh, I don't know how you register it somewhere on on NASA's site. If I'm sure, if you Google Spot the Station, you can. Uh, find that and you just give them your information and it will just in fact i get an email from nasa every couple of days saying hey if you go out if you look up into the southern sky tonight it is in fact spot the station.nasa.gov right excellent yeah so you just register it's a little free sort of email pinging you service and yeah just a little reminder hey head outside and grab the kids and go watch a ton of tons of space stuff flow over your head at uh, incredible speeds i have to say one of the things i like about nasa is that a it's obviously filled with geeks that are happy to implement things like this which you know by the way i mean that as a compliment yeah and b 
when they implement them, they tend to not be daggy. They tend to be actually really kind of good. Yeah, and it's for the people, you know, all the photography, yeah. everything is it's, it's open, you know, it's open content and it's uh, pictures that are free for use and, you know, so it's very much, you know, there's not it's not a lot of gouging. There's no gouging going on from uh, NASA about uh, how you can use this stuff, which is very cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, why not be emailed? So, it's so pretty we, wild. You can yeah. just, you know, get tweets from space and music videos from space and, well, from... Low Earth orbit, or whatever you want to call it, edge of space. I call it space. I'm happy for it Let's to be just space. Let's call it space. Let's call it space, shall we? Yeah. So, so, uh, so let's get back with the show, and um, I would love to know what camera he shot that on, by the way. Um, so, I think it's Nikon's they usually take up there for some reason. Is it? Uh, anyway, yeah. Well, starting with the news, and uh, this week in the news, um, or rather this fortnight in the news since we last recorded, uh, oh. we've seen the passing, well, almost passing, I guess, um, certainly a, uh, a sort of implosion, I think you'd probably describe it as, um, with our time. Do you want to discuss um, what happened, Jase? Look, I don't know an awful lot about it, but uh, the understanding was that Arton kind of went into sort of half receivership and now has been uh, rescued from the brink uh, by investors. Uh, with the news, I think that they are not going to proceed with the Delta Penelope. Is that right? Yes, I think it just got too just got too hard to develop it for with sensor technology, uh, and they had a lot of pre-orders and really couldn't deliver the camera. I mean, you know, Mike, I think you you and I probably saw the writing on the wall a little bit with this. If you remember, I'm sure it was two or three NABs ago when they launched the digital mag digital magazine thing. Yep. And that was that was even though they said it was ready for you know it was imminent did not look ready for was not ready for prime time, uh, and they just kind of missed the boat. I think uh, they have some amazing technology and some beautiful cameras and the um, uh, what's the little camera the um, A minima they're going to yep. develop the D minima, so yet another digital raw two-thirds or 16 mil size sensor camera in going to be uh, being developed and they're going to continue with their audio side of things the um cantara i think what it is but beautiful designed audio their audio recording stuff is, is sensational but uh yes the 35 mil large sensor stuff just proved to be too much of a burden and look too much there's just so much competition out there now i don't think that you could consider the 4K uh, production Blackmagic camera as really a competitor for what the Delta Penelope could have been. But, uh, you know, for something that's under four grand versus I've no idea what they were going to sell the Delta for, but it wouldn't have been cheap. Uh, I don't think they really could compete no matter how good that camera would, uh, would, could have been. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you go back a few years, and I'm talking like, say, three there were several companies that were going, okay, well, this would be a good way to go. It was about the time that yeah, Harry and first, SR Mags and, yeah. Yeah, and I think and none of them really have, no. have sort of surfaced properly, really. I think it was one of those insurmountable things and then everyone just turned around and went, oh, oops, someone's doing an entire camera for a third of the price we were going to sell this mag for. And, and it's moving so quickly. Um, yeah. It's not enough just to have a digital sensor. You have to have one with really good dynamic range. You have to have... Really good processing, and you need to have the thing small. We were shooting um, with the F55 during the week, and yeah. um, 
you know, look, I, I think it's producing really nice images and it's a great camera, but it just, it felt big, it felt clunky, and it it's by no means ish. With the big batteries, and clunky. batteries don't help. No, but it's... If you're not plugging it, if you don't want to run it on batteries, it's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And they're tied to their, I'm sure it's excellent technology, but no one's really up and, you know, dancing in the streets about it, how amazing the new technology is, but it is very much tied to uh, their olivine battery tech i think isn't it or is it just any v-lock did you try anything else on there can you I, run I didn't, V-Lock? i didn't try anything else but look mm. my point is not yes. to say that it's a bad camera yeah um in any way shape or form i'm just simply saying that it felt big mm. where in reality i would have thought that it was a really small compact camera and certainly compared to the f65 oh, it's God. a small camera and there are films you know like uh, after earth about to come out from the f65 here's the f55 and how quickly is that moving that we're going yeah f55 is good Seems a bit big. Seems a bit bulky. Yeah, although I I I can see that the, I could conceive that the F sixty five. I'm sure Sony probably won't agree, but that the it would make sense that the F sixty five and that form factor would kind of fade away, and they'd sort of make it like a hybrid fifty five sixty five, or they would just have stick with the fifty five form factor and go with that, and just put whatever sensors they want in there. It's uh, I think you need a smack around the head if you reckon that i mean the 55 is is quite small camera i mean uh, what, no, we're, what we're used to compared yeah. it's smaller than a red one yeah but and it's that's not that's much not longer exactly. than not much longer than an epic it's pretty compact it just would be better if it had little portable little tiny little dynamic 90s a little sort of smaller the batteries are just a little bit sort of i think a bit sort if, of if that camera had so. been out for two years i would not be making this comment but it's a new camera yeah and i think it's going to get heavy and bulky in its its perceived mm. kind of weight and size really quickly. Um, and you would want to get a camera like that and use it for a few years. So, well, it's so really nice. It's, it's, it's a global shutter. Really oh, yeah. nice, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It's I'm like not saying there's anything shutter. wrong with the camera. 4K, I'm just it seems 4K big. with the option to have a, a quite a usable 4K um, codec not having to necessarily do the raw thing. Yes, it gets bulky if you start having raw recorders and things on the back. But uh, no, no, it's pretty pretty impressive. Admittedly, it's probably double. To fully kitted out one, it's probably double the price of the original um, Red One body only. But well, uh, I really don't think you should be comparing it to the Red One. <laughs> I think you should be comparing it to the Epic, which has been out for years. Yeah. And is about to have a Dragon sensor. Is it? He, yeah, apparently. Is it? That's what I read. Oh, cool. I was listening to this podcast, and it was like 128, I think. I said that was going to have a dragon sensor. How <laughs> the fuck is that Any sensor? second. Seriously, yeah. it's not. I think we're being conned. I don't think we're being conned. Oh, we're being conned. I don't think it's actual. I think... If it was just NAB, power supplies... See? Okay, if it was just power supplies and a little bit of... Then they could fit... Uh, anyway, I think... Didn't you I see think, them at NAB? I think there's something, there's something going on. Okay. Okay. I'm just I, putting two and two and a little a little whisper of a two and a little sort of somebody else here here and there. I think I'm I'm I I, I, I think there's more more to it than just a little bit of color science. And, okay, this is uh, what bugs me. They're just too me. embarrassed to tell us. They're too yeah. embarrassed to say, okay, we're fucked up again. This is what bugs me. Uh, and I'm not okay. I'm gonna. I am going to sound like I'm being nasty, but I'm. 
People like Engadget ran stories saying red Epic Dragon sensor updates start tomorrow, 8,500. Which what they meant was Epic Dragon <laughs> sensor updates collecting your deposits start tomorrow. Well, there is a big banner on red.com that says Dragon starts now. But the definition of starts is can be very many things. We start yes. putting banners on our website. We start taking. We start t- sending you emails. Well, no one's have you. No one's taken. Any, have you paid money? I haven't no, paid no, any money. No. no, I don't think anyone's taken anyone's money. Because um, nothing. I don't know. I I personally don't. I'm sure there's obviously a few cameras been done, but I don't know any of anyone who's actually had their camera in or been touched or has been asked for the uh, no cameras that I know have been called up to the mothership. Now, I, I don't want Red to take this as as a negative thing. We're frustrated because we can't wait, because it's so cool and because it's going to be great and because I think it's going to look really good even though we've not really seen much more than a couple of half a second of a lizard or something. Uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating because... Well, it's, it's, it's a big... <sighs> It's a bit of a cock tease, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole, the whole, Only... <laughs> the whole thing of the, the whole, well, the, the, the clean room, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be an analogy, like, don't do a clean room, you know, don't, um, you're not going to do a clean room on us. I think it's going to be, you know, uh, analogous to um, saying you're going to do something and then... Uh, Doing all the all show and no go. Right, it's it's red pole dancing and and not <laughs> delivering is what you're saying. Yes, the yes. strip the strip show, the yes. uh, strip club. You went the to NAB, Vegas and you yeah. got you got you got tricked by a hooker uh, on a pole with a red epic. I have dragon. never done that, by the way. Neither um, have I actually. Not my entire life, Vegas. never once, I've ever never, once. I'll say this proudly. Once. I have never. I'm I'm completely okay once. No, I've never once walked into a strip club. I find them horrendously offensive to women. I went once for half an hour and it was like just wanted to just crawl into no. the corner. And I, that's, that's I, hand on heart, not I've never once habitat. walked into a strip club. No, but... And as a father of two daughters, I can tell you yeah. it's not taken a lot of motivation to stay out of one. Hey, yeah. changing the subject back, I've heard from the great <laughs> Changing line, the subject back to, I don't know, Arton? To not talking about... No, to okay. Red. I've heard that they're not going to be out for a while. And the, the gossip on the grapevine is the reason is that there's an overheating, you know, like a heat-related um, issue that they're running hot. Mm-hmm. Don't know if that's true. Haven't got an official... Yeah, um, I will put an email into uh, to Red to see if we can get an official reading on what's going on. I think we need an update for the update because the last update was power supplies. It'll be two weeks now. I think that two weeks is like now. So if if power supplies were in and they were ready to be put, you would have thought that at least some cameras would be be happening. Oh, you so think I think it's a power supply problem. Well, that they originally did mention that it was that there was a um, issue with the that the ASICs were all done and and it was just colour science and they had found a last-minute issue with noisy power supplies and they were expecting, there's pretty much two weeks ago, expecting noisy power supplies to be redesigned and they were expecting them back in uh, around about now-ish. Uh, but that, you know, I think that's... There's, it can't be there's, there's another issue. It can't be pleasant for Red to have no. people sitting on the sidelines like Absolutely. we are just rudely mocking stuff and and the trouble is though if you go and say you're going to do something then say 
I've fed up with saying that we're going to do something, and now I'm never going to say we're going to do something until we can actually do it. Yeah, but then if you, go and if say you, you build the stadium, and then you paint the sidelines, yes. and you get the rah-rah girls out, and you say, okay, game starts in, game starting soon, come, in, come on, take the tickets for the parking. Yeah, sooner the- or later, they rip the seats out of the stadium, <laughs> and you've got to call in the, <laughs> the trucks with the big water hoses. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Dragon has left the building. Yes. Or never got here. Someone told me so, the other day, that apart from the fact that they... that I know you like to say that everybody says, I don't think you talk enough. But apart from that, somebody said to me the other day that when you and I talk, we get progressively faster during the podcast in a way that only two Australians would. And it's almost incomprehensible faster. to some people to yes, understand what I we're know. saying. It's, 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 yeah, should like do a... Well, there is a point five setting on the po- on the app on the it's podcast. funny you should say though. that because the person i was talking to said i actually tried playing the your podcast at one and a half speed and it was incomprehensible like, like we have already taken it to one and a half percent at one yeah. and a half times so anyway. hey it doesn't um, get any more information uh, no information for the for the is for the coming basically it doesn't get any more informative at uh sped up so okay. yeah look anyway it's just it's 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 so let me swing my it's frustration. Let me swing speaking. my um, my uh, light beam of uh, annoyance to Canon now, and say, is it really possible that you could record on a five D Mark III in RAW, and and Canon isn't going to be the ones that do that? Is that possible that yes. that Canon sort of engineers who must, after all, have enormous you know they get up in the morning, they clean their teeth, they after they've had their breakfast and catch the train into Canon headquarters, wouldn't you think that the they would train. be like, as a point of pride, not wanting somebody else to hack their camera to produce raw files on a 5D yeah. Mark III with really high dynamic range? Yeah. That would yeah. be like, that would bug me. I would, I would be annoyed by that. I'd be like, hey, we should do this. Because it's, you know, I don't think they've got the camera. internet on there, though. You don't think they've got the internet on in Japan? <laughs> I don't think. I think they just sort of get up. I have a very big research facility here Get on in, the bullet uh, train in and North listen Ride. To just, listen to Cicero. just... They have the internet there. They're nice guys there. I know the guys at Canon in Australia. They're nice guys. They, they could do this. Not just the Japanese guys. Mm, yeah. A lot of Canon engineers I, around the world. I think big company. Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely, you know, the pillars are up. I think definitely there's the... There's the software and there's the hardware and there's Japan and there's Australia and there's US and I think there's... Crossover isn't always, and that's in all of, in all of the companies. Well, dear RC, listen, what we're referring to is the current run of uh, posts that are going up on the net by people that are hacking the uh, Canon 5D Mark III and producing uh, RAW files, which you know we sort of heard about a couple of weeks ago. But at that yeah. stage, when we heard about it, it was like I could record RAW for yeah, here's a, a video of. A second. of- 20 shots yeah. in 19 seconds because that's all we can record. You mean like a, li- a Literally a one-second burst. <laughs> yeah, one, not, not 19 seconds. I could actually take it if it could record for 19 seconds. And it Back was, then it was like 1920 eight by 104 or something crazy. No, it was somewhere. 1920 by like 803 or something. It was like really whacked out. <laughs> Which is it, interesting, and I love it that there's people who uh, can devote their uh, the wee hours to, to doing this stuff. But it has taken a bit of a interesting uh, progression in literally the last... I don't know, three or four hours here as we go to press, in inverted commas. Uh, for what it looks like here, we are seeing some much higher dynamic range. We, we say raw in inverted commas, we don't really kind of know what sort of format of raw, or, but a, a more dynamic, a better dynamic range version of full 1080p at 24 frames with audio uh, for extended run times, 
with no sensor overheating, no no camera overheating. Uh, and they've got full side-by-sides with the same exposure from the standard iframe export with the, with a cine style, not just regular, like, put it on green mode and, you know, his his soccer mum style. This is actually with Technicolor cine style compared to the raw output, and it is dramatically, well, I'd say... There's a shot of a car pulling out. We'll put links in the show notes, but I'm sure by the time this comes out, you would have seen it. But just a car pulling out of a dry, out of out of a garage with a hot background, and completely, you know, white, blown out sky and overexposed houses outside the garage. The camera's inside the garage, looking out. And in the raw version, same exposure. The car looks exactly the same, but the, there's detail in the sky. You can see blue in the sky, and the houses yeah. are, look almost at exposure. Yep, it's. Interesting. It's kind of impressive. Whether you, you go ahead and download this and use this day to day, or as you're shooting the thing, regardless of that, it certainly flags something. It it certainly flags that these cameras are capable of more than we are being sold. Our good friend Jeff Huser, who is uh, obviously been on the show and uh, one of the founders of uh, FX Guide, you know, summed it up to me. He said, you know, if this is if this is happening, this is actually more exciting to me than a clean HDMI output. Yeah, because there've been plenty of comparisons, and literally in the last few days, people and I've done my own, and but very unscientifically, but people have done uh, some, you know, good. F- blow ups and I'm sure you guys will do yours at some stage Mike just side by side clean to you know standard uh, the high, the lowest compression internal recording on the 5 Mark 3 and not a lot in it I'm glad I didn't rush out and buy a Ninja or buy a Blackmagic uh, shuttle to go on the back of a 5D because A, that would break Wingrove's paradigm, of course, but <laughs> it would, um, uh, it was really not, there's just, it's it's visually very little. I mean, maybe if you really blow it up to the pixel level, probably maybe some little tiny stair-stepping, but even just on, in, in quite a you know, though, good, though like fairness, 200, Jason, 400% blow up, you can't really Yeah, pick, but in fairness, there are some other reasons why you might want to have HDMI out um, of course, clean. For 422 versus 420. Well, but also, let's say you were trying to do something that was streaming live, you know. Yes, I mean, you're getting true. a clean live feed out of your cannons that you could then run into a switcher and um, indeed and put up to Ustream. So there, there are you know you valid could reasons theoretically why have done um, FX Guide live at NAB on 5D Mark Threes. Not not super happy with HDMI as our primary cable no, into the 5D. No, Feel like they might fall out its, a little. Need a yeah, G yeah. clamp on there to hold those suckers in, and yeah. also there's a distance of how long a, an HDMI cable can run. It's after all designed for yes. Um, I went to a wedding the other day, and they, they said to me, hey, could you bring like a five-meter HDMI cable that we could borrow? And I said, I uh, five meters? And they said, well, them, ten, yeah. five, something like that. You know, like a really long one. I'm glad uh, I've got my transmitters because I have got a cupboard full of mm, 30, 40, 50, 60-foot HDMI cables. If you're cabling anything at home, Mike, call me first. Come on down to Wingrove's HDMI cable barn because <laughs> I have got the lot. <laughs> And do they, I don't use them anymore. Do they <laughs> but, work? Yeah, they are shocking. Well, yeah, they work. They're fine, absolutely. I've done on set, even have, I think, a couple of 25-footers with a little joiner. Fine. Absolutely no problem. I did not think they worked. I actually yeah, told these no, people that they didn't absolutely. work. No, no, they do. I mean, it depends on the the you know the cable that you buy, you know, but this stuff's, you know, 20-something bucks on eBay, and you buy two or three different versions on it. Something doesn't work, 
bugger it, you chuck it away. But do not go to whatever J car and spend one, two, three hundred dollars on a twenty foot HDMI cable. Go and you know, just seriously, people. There's this thing called eBay, right? It's it's a world of wonder. Actually, seriously. the thing that bothers me is people that buy really, really expensive gold cables for cabling up oh. their either their stereos or their TVs. Shocking. Like a gold HDMI cable. Like there's like yeah. monster cables we used to go on about. You know, yeah. they made something that was like $150 for a, you know, a Premier Pro yeah. cable. And it's like really yeah. identical signal output. Yeah. But yeah. hey, um. So anyway. So uh, anyway, this is. I mean, it's interesting. It it, it, it there is absolutely um, exponential uh, progress in this department here. But it will be interesting if it gets really stable. I mean, it, for 25 frames work, if it gets really stable, I may shoot with this. If I don't, you know, seeing as I don't have... 24 seeing, 24. Seeing as the, um, the unicorn camera still is not been in, is not in captivity yet, uh, I still may, may do this. And while I still wait for my frickin' red, red, red dragon. Um, but I think, yeah, it does sort of... Again, it's very telling of what is possible with the cameras and what we previously thought was well, we can't be can't possibly be possible to get this kind of interesting quality out of uh, the cameras because they'll overheat or they'll blow up or you know you'll. Well, I think, frankly, I think they, they, they may still say? discover that they do overheat. We haven't. Well, actually. they run. They people have filled cards with these things, right? So mm-hmm. far, from what I can see from these tests, and I think it's what did I say? It's uncompressed YUV four two two fourteen bit. Yeah, video I, there was something about the data rate I tweeted before. 90 was, I think. 90? Yeah, I think that's the peak that I've seen. Yeah. Could be mm. wrong, but I think that's what it is. But look, as I say, this is, mm. um, oh, I think you said, Jason, this is happening as we kind of speak. So it's... Yeah, it's very uh, interesting. You will keep an eye on it, but mm. I don't know, just Magic Lantern has a lot more credibility than it ever did. I mean, it's growing yes. over time. It's a. It's, this is like it's a wiki. There's like dozens yeah. of people working on this, not just one guy in a basement. Uh, this is like dozens of people swapping code madly to like I fixed this. Oh, I've got a problem with this. Boom, quickly. Okay, no worries. I've sorted that for you. And they're sort of crowdsourcing the problem, and it, that just sort of accelerates the the progress. And I mean, do Canon go? Wow, we can do much. Wow, we can get much better with these cameras than we thought. Or are they? Are they gnashing their teeth thinking, damn, these guys have uncovered these hidden features we knew were always there? I mean, if your cameras are capable of doing this stuff, you could elevate the entire line, you know? It's not just like, well, we don't want to accelerate the 5D Mark III because then it'll overtake what's possible with the C500 or the C300. Then why don't just have every single one of your cameras benefit from from this, this workaround or hack or technology or whatever we want to call it? If they found an interesting way of doing it that's like has previously been even unthought of by the engineers themselves, um, perhaps you know this is the kind of thing that needs to to you know we need to see this in the cameras. Don't start holding back on it because you think one camera is going to be you know held back. You know it's going to have some sort of pyramid marketing bullshit reason not to do it. Why not have all of your cameras be more amazing than everyone else's? Yeah. Know. And as somebody posted, I think on uh, nofilmschool.com, what about doing this with real anamorphic lenses? You know, because if you're getting a. If you're uh, getting the full height or 36 getting close millimeter to. by 24 mm. millimeter, yeah. Mm. Um, mm. yeah. Full frame. Well, look, I, I applaud the underground movement that's pushing this all forward, but uh, it does sort of. I just wonder whether this is 
something they don't want us to know or whether they are now canon is all the more enlightened for all of this they're going oh my god how are they doing this <laughs> well uh, as you, i say i you know, it's a it's interesting. i think it's an, an an unintended or perhaps intended throwdown to the uh very talented canon engineering team because yeah. if a bunch of people that have no documentation and working blind yeah now very smart they people, probably they know mean, more about the code than the canon guys do it's now. really hard on the outside looking in to know yeah. what you can know when you can yeah. get access to the people that designed the chips, especially when you're talking about... Um, but hey, perhaps you're right. Yeah. So anyway. changing to gear now. Yes. And I uh, want to kind of move along and touch on a few products. So let's start with... Um, I was shooting on the weekend. I was doing at least uh, two, I think, projects on the weekend. And I ended up using my uh, Cine slider. Oh, cool. Yeah, What you got the three-foot. Or yes, I have the three foot, which is three a good length. Slider. Yes, but it's not a travel length. I should point out that um, no, th- there is that really cool one that doubles on upon itself for traveling, which I've still got an eye yeah, on. Yeah, the Edelchrone one, which is mm. bloody impressive. But, really um, but this, yeah, and we looked at, I think, at NAB saw the uh, the very cool electronic version of what this is doing. The Cal- Kessler Parallax. Parallax. Um, I haven't. It's not on the website yet, but they've certainly blogged about it, and and um, Eric's tweeted about it. And there's a if you search for Kessler Parallax on Vimeo, there's a very good demo that Eric did on this very simple uh, system of doing a panning, uh, a panning, a simple panning move if you're traveling three foot or five foot along on your cine slider. So this is an uh, this is a pan head. Uh, it's very mechanically attached to the travel of the slider. So basically you set one point, set your pan at one point, and you go to the other end and set, the, set um, I guess, a distance of, of this cam system, basically, and you can have a nice, smooth pan um, as you travel. So you don't have to sort of do that thing where you're kind of trying to pan as you move the camera, so you're not trying to be dolly grip and camera operator in one. If you've just got a second camera set up, as like, you know, the simple, if you've got a main interview camera and then you've got a second, maybe like a profile camera doing an interesting sort of move back, just rock and rolling it, going backwards and forwards, say off to the side. You could actually have someone who doesn't need to necessarily operate this. They could just be, why don't you just crank this little crank to one side? When it gets to the other end, just crank it back the other way. And they don't even have to look about the, look at the panning. But uh, yeah, I mean, for it's, a, it's bucks. a very impressive little add-on to, to an already very good... Uh, uh, slider, four hundred bucks. Yeah, um, I mean so that's the cat. That's the head. That's the pa- that's the pan and tilt head, which yeah, looks it? reasonably substantial. Well, it ha- um, maybe it's maybe it's just the cam bottom to go on the bottom of your existing head. So maybe it's the cam base there and the uh, the rod the rods and all of the sort of add on system. Uh, it's a little bit grey because it's not actually on the website yet. Um, it's available mid to late. Summer, I want to say, so that's a mid 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 year. I think the thing about it that's interesting to me is that you don't, you know, have to sort of set it up with um with a set square and a and a slide rule. Like yeah. you can sort of aim it and uh, and set it, and it's a mechanical device, so it's not like you're having to do a whole lot of you know weird and wonderful yeah. things to program it or something. So I, look, I think this is something I would absolutely want because that's the move that I want most. I yeah. want to. There are obviously occasions you want to like go along. In parallel, but more often than not, I'm wanting to um, uh, to do a pan and a track at the same time. It's a very simple. It's very simple physics. It's very simple geometry. What they've done here, but they've done it very, done it 
very cleverly and simply and it doesn't hasn't added a lot of bulk to to what is already a reasonably bulky travel item you know but this is yeah it's very impressive so the picture t- does uh, paint a thousand words so i'm going to shut up and go and have a look at it and it's uh in the, in the video, there's, yeah, in the video, you've got the slider moving past somebody, say, making coffee, and the camera seems to uh, stay trained on where the coffee is being made, even though the camera is gliding past to them, uh, past the coffee machine, and that's exactly the shot you want, I reckon. And I mm. think I said this mm. the other day before we talked about something else. Yeah, or even just you know, just just a slight little pan pivot around someone as you just yep. uh, just that little tiny correction just to keep them in roughly the right spot in the. But there's uh, nothing the more annoying than overcorrecting on that, yeah. and so you get them moving a bit left and right in the frame during the, the shot. It's yeah, because yeah, you're trying to pain. push and pan and tilt and all the rest, and it's just a very simple sort of set and forget way of way of doing things. Now you've uh, also included for our um, consumption and discussion the Zoom H6 uh, recorder with the yeah. interchangeable. Yes, it's pretty impressive. I think Zoom. Um, Although the proof will be in the pudding with this when you start to play with it because some of the zooms in the past have been mind-numbingly annoying to work with. Super I don't own one. I, I Actually, I have the little Zoom H1, and it's fine. Uh, but this is the, the H6. So this is actually, as the name would suggest, a six-channel handheld uh, recorder and much more mechanical than what I think I, I didn't like and what I like about my Tascam, the DR100 I have, is lots of mechanical buttons. Lots of switches and, and physical dials where you easily and intuitively can go to exactly the right input and change an audio level without having to go in a menu and make lots of button clicking while you're trying to record. So Zoom H6, it's not out till June and July, 399 which is pretty impressive, but it's got a very nice screen on it. Lots of manual level controls, buttons for enabling any up, up to the six tracks, and it comes with the XY mic at the top, which is the kind of thing that you would see on, say, the Zoom H4. Uh, but it has like this quick release module on the top where you can undock, say, the XY mic or put on another extra two XLR inputs for full six XLR. And not just boring XLRs, but that kind of those combo ones, which will take 3.5 jack or tip ring sleeve and, and all those, the, you know, the sort of combo sockets. Take six of those and give you individual discrete recording and six individual actual level knobs for that. Uh, or a, a shotgun mic or a sort of like a side address mic almost like a little podcasting mic really so you could actually use this as a usb interface podcast mic really if you wanted to and then just or you don't even have to have a module on there at all you could undock it and then you've got immediately got four xlrs you can record from so pretty impressive especially and a nice color screen it looks far more intuitive 399 yeah impressive they've hopefully learnt from their mistakes of the the h4 which was just like i'm still recovering while we're talking about um, audio stuff, uh, and I do agree with you about that previous user interface disaster, yeah. um, I got some Rode mics recently that I'm just in love with. I got the SmartLav and oh, the pin mic. Mm-hmm. SmartLav plugs into my iPhone. So you can get this app from Rode. We've discussed it, I think, before on the show. Yeah, Rode Record. It's on Rode your Rec. iPhone. Just 
it's there, right? Because you just leave it there. You never even think about it. I yeah. now throw the lav mic in my bag because right. it's smaller than my headphones. That's, you know, like I have buds that go in your ear type headphones. It's mm. that kind of small, tiny little thing that you can just have in your bag all the time. Sure enough, on the weekend, wanted to record um, horse hooves just going across concrete. Mm-hmm. And I went, well, I don't have the audio gear. I've got to get the th- Oh, wait a second. Just grabbed it out, plugged it in, started recording um, and recorded that. Now, obviously, it's designed as a... I say obviously, it's designed as a lav mic. I didn't use it that way, but in a storm, it's much better than just using um, your uh, iPhone mic and yeah. recording it uh, independently. I think the caveat with every time we're mentioning sound stuff is that it's the inner storm, right? You know, we do not condone in any way recording your own sound. Do yeah. not, <laughs> do not, do not assume do that audio not. recording is easy. No, I'm with you. No, for audio but, is. Freaking hard. It's and more harder than, more, way more harder than the visual, and especially doubly hard when you're trying to do both. So always follow proper procedure and get a highly trained professional to do your sound. However, the other thing if I'm doing you don't, in a storm. I'm, the other thing I'm doing is the uh, pin mic at the moment. So this is a lab mic that instead of clipping on, and let's face it, most things rub. Um, I've got it coming through my jacket and just sitting. Um, flush which yeah. is a is a neater solution i'm i was a little worried about you know sticking things yeah, through sticking my fabric pins through your jacket but i haven't seen any marks on anything when i've finished have you i mean it's really sort tiny of, little um, yeah. spikes but no it I've is a bit it. of hard to put on especially with my failing eyes in close trying to get those little pins in the thing but uh <laughs> it's a clever design and as you say what it avoids is that sort of worry that you're constant that you don't it takes away a little bit of that worry of having to constantly monitor the audio worrying that the mic's rubbing on something as someone kind of changes their posture because you can kind of you're not you're not tied into clipping it right up next you know on a lapel or the edge of something the edge of a neck or the edge of a cuff or you know where there's a lot more uh, opportunities for it sort of rubbing on itself it can never rub on the fabric really because it's going through the fabric um, I mean, it's not quite pointing straight up at your mouth as much as a normal, like the lab, any of the other labs are, but it is definitely um, a very neat on-camera look, and it includes a couple of little screw-on caps, I think, where there's like a silver and a black yep. one, so depending on what you're wearing. And a, so um, it has, very a, good. It very has nice. a you know shield, like a windshield thing. Yes, that's a little bit more obvious. <laughs> True. It looks but, like you've got but, a little um, triple yeah, a on bug you. on you. Yeah. <laughs> a little triple triple embryo on you. That being said, if again you're in a situation where you have to record something and it's a bit windy, um, it's a real problem trying to hide those mics inside your jackets and get mm. a good sound out of them. I found without them rubbing because well, that's where the highly trained professionals come into play when they'll sort of get the nice medical tape and tape it on the inside of your shirt or behind <laughs> a piece of cloth. And those microphones are or really on good. On my at chest, not... which then is the scene from Forty Year Old Virgin, as they <laughs> yeah, right. rip off the gaffer tape and take out a yes. large section of my chest hair. That's the, the difference between um, you know. Because God us. decided that I would look like. Austin Powers without a shirt on. Um, changing to cameras, mounts. Um, one of the things we've lusted after in uh, various cameras that have had it in recent times is internal NDs. In other words, an ND that flips up without having to stick something on the front. Now, mm. 
Jason, you shoot with a variable ND a lot. I know that because I do. stood beside you when you've been doing it. I feel a little bit guilty about doing it because it's not really the right thing to do. But, you know, my stuff changes. You know, the stuff that I shoot changes so quickly. I just can't do the whole, flip, give me a two-stop. No, give me a three-stop. No, that's no good. No, sun's got in. Flip it back out again. And I really want to shoot wide open all the time. So, yep, very NDs uh, it is, I'm afraid. And But, you know, I know a lot of highly Mark Toyer. Not not a slouch in the shooting department. No. Mark Toyer, director. He, she's shooting now. A lot of L glass, very ND. So I'm glad that we've um, that he's. Um, I'm in good company. Uh, but this is uh, a really kind of unusual mount. This is not for everybody because this is more for um, mirrorless compact cameras. But the and the interesting named Holy Manta. H O L Y M A N T A. This guy, it started off as a um, as a kind of Kickstarter project, but now I think you can pre-order these because it's come out of it, got funding. Um, hollymanta.com. They have the VND uh, set of uh, lens adapters. Now, these are basically lens adapters to go from EOS to Sony NEX or from EOS to Micro Four Thirds. But in the middle there, because there's a lot of space, when you're adapting a lens from an SLR to a mirrorless, you've got a bit of room there in the adapter. Uh, they've slid it in a very nice mechanical uh, variable ND. So you probably, if you're pushing for low light, you might want to have another non-variable ND adapter as well. But if you're constantly in where you in, in areas where you're you're not you're not worried about losing light um, because they'll have a base level of light loss. You can't imme- always remove you can't remove completely the ND. I don't believe. Um, then yeah, you'll I guess you have the standard. There's no real mention of the actual specs on the level of uh, variable ND control, but the usual is like three stops or so to about eight stops or two stops to nine or so stops, you know, the, the usual range. Um, but for 280 bucks, you can pre-order these at hollymanta.com. As I say, EOS to NEX and EOS to Micro Four Thirds, if that's your, if that's your flavor of choice. Jace, do you remember Very 35 nice. uh, adapters? You know, they had little vibrating mirrors. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Remember those? I think I was about to go and buy one around about the time that the 5D Mark II came into being. And I was literally close to... Because there was a couple of really good uh, adapters out there. I was very close to buying one. Because uh, I just loved the look. Immediately loved the look of those adapters because they were full frame. Um, and there was nothing really like it. There was nothing like that. The closest thing, you know, at that time, what we were shooting were with, with was things like the um, Sony the nine hundreds, and it was all sort of smaller in digital. It was all kind of smaller sensor stuff, like like two thirds inch sensors and, and stuff. So yeah, that they were a mind blowing. Um, choice at the time but well, they were a bit complicated and yes vibrating bits of glass and from uh, yeah from but it was cell cool. phones or something yeah um, it was the I, beginning of the sort of full frame kind of 5d revolution. kind of evolution yeah, revolution let me use that then to segue into this week's uh, red room um in a second we'll uh, sit down with jesse dana who's uh both a producer but also the cinematographer on a project that's up in kickstarter 
And um, I just want to set this up because it actually relates to what we were just discussing. This is a film that, uh, that he's been working on now for about six years. This is not a Kickstarter film in the sense that they want money to start the project and they've got a really good idea. They've actually been filming this. What they'd like now is some uh, Kickstarter money to get it uh, in post-production to you know, where it needs to be. It's a remarkable story. The film is called Life After Life. And the reason that I segued from those adapters is that when they started six years ago, that's what they were filming on. They were mm. filming on 35 adapters on cameras. And this, this project, from a technical point of view, has walked the path that I feel is our you know, uh, history yeah. of digital cinematography. They started here. They went through you know, the P2s, the uh, Canon 5Ds, the <laughs> 7Ds, and they're now on the C300. It's, uh, it's a remarkable job from a cinematographer's point of view to make all of those formats look consistent and edit together. And, uh, and, and yet it's also a testament it. to the fact that it's a labor of love. If you can stick with a, with a project for that long um, and never abandon it or, you know, to, to, to keep going and pers per pursue it and keep, go keep updating, keep shooting regardless of the format, yeah. So let me set up this uh, this interview for you. We wanted to talk to Jesse. I get sent, I'm sure you do, we get sent, um, a lot of Kickstarter requests. People saying, hey, could you promote my Kickstarter film because it would be really awesome when we listen to the show. And, and look, we, we love that you guys listen to the show. Unfortunately, we can't discuss every single one of them. And as you'll note, we don't normally. But every once in a while, one catches our eye that just is incredible. And it's incredible normally at a couple of levels, as is the case of this one. It's incredible from a technology point of view that how much this has had to move through the digital age and yet is m remaining this very, very high-quality uh, image. The second thing is the story of this film I just found to be incredibly moving. And I'll just set it up for you, though I would recommend that you go to Kickstarter. I'll give you the link in the show notes. But if you did a, a kickstarter.com look for Life After Life, um, then uh, you'll find it. It's a documentary film. It's going to be uh, probably a full-length um, feature. So they started out by going into San Quentin, and, and I may get some of this wrong, I apologise if I do, but and filming the idea that I think it was five people that were on life, and they're thinking that by the time they finished filming, that maybe one of them would have got out on uh, parole, and then they could follow these people as they tried to uh, reintegrate into society, which is a really difficult problem because in one respect, these people have done really bad things. I mean, there's no walking away from it, um, uh, depending on who we're talking about these people mm. have murdered people they're like a serious drug and um you know this is not this is life imprisonment after all right so in one sense i would have no sympathy i guess if somebody asked me about that just in casual kind of conversation and yet these guys and some of them um got in very very young in one case um doing something with his father and didn't want to rat out his father anyway just you know i'm not saying that it's forgivable but at some point, if you've served your sentence and society has deemed that you need to serve a 25-year sentence for this crime that you've done, the question is, is it okay, you know, to get out? And so, one of, actually, two of the guys that they followed did get out. They served their time. But one of them in particular got out because he'd served his time, um, but he'd actually become a, a jailhouse lawyer. And... At a parole hearing, they actually said no to him getting out. And the only reason they said no is that they just deemed the parole board that, that um, you know, his crime was just sort of bad and he shouldn't be allowed out. Like they yeah. resentenced him, which they're not allowed to do. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. But the guys that you get to see in this documentary, not all of them, but some of them, 
just are not what you expect. You, you, they are not sort of vicious, um, unattractive, uh, evil people. At least they don't come over that way. Now, I'm not walking away from the fact they've done bad things. But what, what just just floored me is that you see these guys on the outside, a couple of them, and they're trying to get back in this zone, and they're completely institutionalized from yeah. having been in for so long, right? Like one of them couldn't find a payphone to get home when he got out because it never occurred to him there wouldn't be payphones anymore. But of course, there are no payphones, right? Yeah. He had to walk all the way home because he just assumed he got out, he'd call. Well, he got out, couldn't find a phone. I mean, it's just, but he get, so they get out, they're on the streets, they're doing work in teaching people, one of these guys, to, um, in terms of, you know, like education and, you know, not going to um, repeat the mistakes I did kind of stuff. And then the law that allowed this guy to get out gets repealed at federal level, or rather the, there's a repeal as part of an appeal process. And so it faces the prospect of having to go back into jail. And, and I mean, I'm just... Like yeah. this, it's a really powerful piece of uh, filmmaking that I think will challenge people's perceptions. Certainly, challenge mine because I looked at it initially, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll put it in the pile of things to get to." And uh, and Jesse followed up with me, and he said, "Look, you know, really loved your opinion." I started looking at the footage. I was sucked right in. So anyway, this is not a mega project. This is not one of those Kickstarter projects that's going to get you know three million for. For Veronica Mars kind of thing, but this is some hardcore filmmakers who are dedicated to looking at is what a very very difficult problem. Yeah, so we're obviously going to get this uh, podcast out really quickly after we record it. At the moment, though, it's uh, they got four thousand and they're pledging they're after thirty thousand and they got about nineteen days to go, probably about seventeen or. We hope to get this, this out. Yeah, uh, podcast is out. So there'll be seventeen days, I hope, left when you hear this. Please go and check it out. Um, it's life after life, but check it out just because uh, of both things, right? The story and just the thought of trying to make this over so many years. They could get some funding up front for a lot of kind of, um, uh, well, I'll let, I'll let Jess explain. I spoke to him earlier in the week uh, via phone. And in fact, I'm going to put up a link also with a little video um, that I recorded with Jess, uh, especially for FX Guide on, uh, on our um, homepage. So you can see that as well. And we'll put a link into that. But the filmmakers are just honest, uh, everyday kind of filmmakers that have just completely committed to what I think is a really, really interesting project. Anyway, here's that interview now. You are entering the Red Room. So thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Where, where are you uh, at the moment? Uh, I'm in San Francisco, where I'm, where I'm based. So uh, this project's been going now for how long? How long? I mean, when did you first get involved in... Did you get involved at the start of Life After Life? Yeah, so it's been going on for about six years now. Um, the genesis of the project was the producer-director, Tamara Perkins, was actually working inside San Quentin Prison. Uh, she, a few years before that, had started a nonprofit that uh, taught yoga for stress relief for at-risk youth and juvenile hall and, and youth corrections. And uh, that work led her to teaching yoga inside San Quentin Prison, actually. And she'd been doing that for about a year, working with a group of lifetime inmates. And then they found out that she was a filmmaker and asked her to help tell their story. And uh, she and I had collaborated, I would say, about six months prior to that on a short film about domestic violence. And uh, so she called me up. We had a very good rapport. We started talking about you know, what the film could be. And we immediately decided to go back into the prison and sit down with the men and figure out a way to 
you know, make sure that, that their voices were a part of the process of developing what the movie was going to be. I have a friend who's a performance artist who's done work with uh, local prisons, and um, I have a lot of respect for someone that does that because as a woman entering a, uh, you know, prison environment, uh, you need to be fairly resilient. This is uh, not something for the meek. <laughs> yes, that that is absolutely true. There's a a fairly high intimidation factor, I would say. You know, you uh, pass through quite a few uh, large, uh, scary gates, and there's definitely men in towers with guns. Um, and actually, when you're when you're entering, they they inform you that they have a no hostage policy, uh, which just means that if you're taken hostage, that uh, that's just going to be that, and there's not going to be a negotiation. So, so there's definitely a, quite a few emotional barriers, I would say, uh, to entering, not, not to mention all the, the logistical realities, of course. So we're six years ago, and the project mm-hmm. uh, gets the involvement of the inmates to discuss their story. How long after that process do you actually start filming? Well, I would say we actually started filming fairly early, um, even before we really knew what exactly we were looking at. Basically, our, our, what Tamara and I decided was that the best thing to do would as we were doing our research, if we could get people to sit down with us and film them, then we could kind of kill two birds with one stone. We could begin to put together some sort of trailer for fund development, uh, along with kind of piecing together what our story was going to be. So I, I owned a HD camera at the time. It was like a, a JVC HD 110 shoulder-mounted HD camera and a 35-millimeter lens adapter. And so we just used that kit and a couple of tungsten lights and went out and started filming experts and, and talking to people. And we even did, I think, one or two days of like very preliminary filming inside the prison just for an hour here or an hour there uh, to put together bits and pieces of what our funding trailer would be. But I, I don't think we actually really had a good sense of what our story was until maybe a year and a half or two years into the project. Let's discuss the technical side of the project, and then we'll uh, swing back to discussing some of the kind of emotional and business sides of it. But you're starting out with a 35 mil adapter, so this is a pretty fairly sort of cumbersome rig by today's standards. <laughs> I mean, it was great to to have those adapters, but by the time you stuck that on the front of something, and and you know, it all became quite a a big rig. I'm I'm wondering from a physical point of view, in a prison and stuff, were you was it kind of size an issue, or did you have lots of room to move, and was it really like uh i would have imagined you'd want to be kind of no fairly mobile to what was going on and you were able to sort of react to what was happening but i don't know what was it like yeah um it's so i it's it's hard it's a little hard to describe what it's like to be in in prison when you haven't been in there because it, everything is just different it's it's an entire it's an entire society unto its own uh its own time structures and expectations and um so, I mean, the rig was much larger than it should have been, hands down. <laughs> if if I had my, my choices, we would have had a, a different camera altogether. But but in the early days, you know, funding what it was and everything, uh, that's what it was. And um, it was with my – gosh, it must have been two feet long or something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty ridiculous. And I – but I would shoot with it handheld um, – the balance of the adapter and, you know, stills lenses in the front, it, it wasn't so unwieldy and crazy that I, I couldn't handhold it. And, uh, you know, there's a V-mount battery off the back of the camera sort of making the weight a little, you know, like where I could deal with it. Um, and so as far as space goes and space constraints, the first couple of times we were in 
we didn't have full access in terms of where we were in the prison. So we were mostly in more like outdoor or, or more like the yard sort of spaces. And so I, I wasn't as big of a deal. I, I wasn't walking through the gangway planks or, or the narrow corridors that there are in other parts of the prison. I mean, that begs the question, how does San Quentin sort of deal with your request to film? Well, that's, that's a huge, huge process. And uh, basically, because Tamara had spent a year working in the prison, getting to know all the various people within the institution, we had already developed a lot of trust. And we had a lot of people vouching for us going into the prison. And sort of the, the, the two ways to get in are that, what we did, which is spend a lot of time you know, laying groundwork, building trust, building relationships, and having people willing to, to vouch for you and say that you're going in with good intentions. Uh, the other route is, you know, if you're a large, like your Discovery Channel or something like that, then you have a little more clout and you can, you know, push the doors open a little easier with, with money. But um, there's a lot of just logistical realities, but both from approval at the prison level all the way up to the state level. And um, there's also a lot of a lot of laws governing how you can film in prison or how you can interact with inmates. Uh, for instance, you're not allowed to request specific interviews with specific inmates. Um, not really? Just, yeah, it's it's a it's a particularity of the law where I think I think it's designed to to stop people from delivering messages back and forth, you know, via this conduit. And, and so uh, the way that you have to get, for instance, a repeat interview or a follow-up interview is you have to, you know, get permission to film in a particular area with the hopes that you will come across somebody. And then when you come across them, you can then impromptu arrange an interview. And you can, so you can sort of massage things to go in that direction, but you can't actually, you know, dictate, I'm going to interview Bob at, you know, 7 o'clock, something like that. The sort of intent is to follow five um, lifers. Yeah. How on earth do you do that when you can't arrange to follow up with those individual five? So, yeah, that's, that was very much our challenge. And we learned the hard way a couple of times early in the process about those sorts of rules where we, you know, in our initial decision to follow these men, we wrote that language into our request for time in the prison for filming. And we got a lot of you know, very curt responses about how that was actually illegal and we couldn't, you know, pursue that course of action. And so uh, from there, what we ended up doing is we focused on programs within the prison that all the men that we were following were participants of. <laughs> right. And, and then we used those programs as kind of gateways into uh, seeing the men and spending time with the men. What were you doing about audio and lighting at this early stage? Were you... so? Uh, in the prison, we never were able to do anything for lighting, uh, inside or outside. So it was really, and also, and audio in the prison is as big of a nightmare as, yeah. <laughs> as video in the prison. Audio is so much worse. And um, so, I mean, the first the first couple times we went in without a sound person, it was just me and Tamara, and I brought in, you know, like a couple wireless lav mics and a shotgun on the camera. And we really just made do with that. So I, w I would mic up whoever we were interviewing. Uh, we, I try to put their back to the noisiest part of the room and hope the noisiest part, hopefully that angle wasn't the worst angle for lighting. And, you know, it kind of went from there. You do succeed, though, in getting this um, initial run to get you that first funding approval, correct? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did very well, actually. We mostly reached out to social justice uh, grant funding organizations 
and uh, we were able to raise a good amount of money. I think a uh, hundred or hundred fifty thousand dollars, and uh, that supported us. I want to say for about a about a year, we had a a strong like thirty day block of very like defined filmmaking where we we rented a better camera. We spent a total of two weeks in the prison, not every other day, but almost every other day, so over the course of a month. And then the days we weren't in the prison, we were on the ground in various communities that were affected by uh, by these this sort of uh, transience back and forth between the institution. And so we spent a lot... You've now moved to like a, what, a Vericam or a... Uh, yeah, a shooting with the, once we had funding, we, we were shooting with an HPX 2000, which okay. is sort of like a, a baby brother to the Vericam. It's a P2-based, ENG-style, two-thirds-inch shoulder-mounted camera. It had a very nice color science, a good skin tone rendition. And uh, also, it had five P2 card slots, and so you could record... So, so prior to this, you'd been recording to tape, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, we were recording to HDV tape. Right, and now you're recording to effectively uh, memory cards. What yes. w- was all this getting digitized as you went along, or what was happening to all the footage? So that's a whole other story. At that point, we were digitizing as we went, and we were logging as we went. Um, and so we, you know, over the years, our kind of backup and redundancy has evolved. Of course, dealing with you know, all these different different camera platforms and different file types and everything, and trying to keep everything up to a code where you know, where things don't just fall off, fall off a cliff somewhere, the way, the way that's prone to happen with technology. Because um, you've, really, you've really sort of experienced through this project many things, but one of them um, is just the arc of digital cinematography coming of age. Oh, absolutely. Because from yeah. there you'd go on to what, HVX 200s, which I certainly shot with a lot and found mm-hmm. to be a great camera, but, you know, 5Ds up to C300s today, is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And uh, I mean, a big challenge there was trying to maintain this sense of a, a cinematic quality to the foot, to the look of the film. I mean, we started with that shallow focus we got out of the 35 adapter. And uh, then we went to the Vericam, which two thirds inch was, you're able to achieve that same kind of look, obviously not as much shallow focus, but the, the way the skin tones handled and everything, the camera still had a very cinematic look. But then going into uh, HVX 200 and EX1 and sort of a, a period of kind of grab bag cameras, whatever we were able to use at the time, uh, it was that that was a real, I mean, real crapshoot really in terms of. Yeah, I mean, I, know, I love the what, HVX 200. I think it's a was a really solid camera. Um, but the difference between a 5D and a HVX 200, between a fixed lens and a and a you know. Uh, a stills camera being modified for shooting video. It's quite a difference in what you would have expected that look to be, especially if yeah. you're not able to light each scene to try and mirror what had preceded it. Yeah, I, it's, it's very true. And I mean, in terms of what I did to maintain a look and maintain a kind of similar quality, earlier on in the process, I set up a couple of rules for myself. Um, and I try, and I still, even to this day, have tried to hold to those as much as I can. It's um, I, I made some decisions around like direction of light and just sort of guiding principles. Like, of course, when you're doing a documentary, if something important is happening, you film it no matter where in the room you are because you can't miss the, that moment. Uh, and so, obviously, you break these rules, even though you set them up. But I tried to, for instance, play a camera side key light whenever we, whenever we were filming subjects in the film and if we were doing right. 
and expert testimonial stuff, I'd play a, a far side key light and something that felt more uh, composed and 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 had 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 like a, a little more um, what's the word like just really an expert testimonial kind of feeling to it. Whereas with all of our subjects, the main thing I was looking for was a sense of authenticity or kind of a sense of a, that there was a lack of artifice. But, um, but I mean, in talking, it may sound like what you are primarily doing is just a bunch of headshots to camera, but that isn't, that isn't the case. This, um, this is far more than just people sitting against a kind of a white wall talking heads to camera and also not just inside the prison. There's an enormous amount of footage outside, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when we started the process, California actually was only releasing, it was like a fraction of a fraction of a percent of lifetime inmates that were eligible for parole. Uh, just the nature of politics in the state were that uh, even if someone was paroled, most of the time the governor would veto their parole and they would end up staying in prison. Uh, but we had, once uh, our current governor came in and with sort of prison crisis that's going on in our state with the overcrowding and everything, they decided to start letting more people out. And so, uh, so that, uh, along with a lot of the guys that we were following, just really coming to age in terms of their terms, meant that we've actually had two guys come out, which you know, we, were, we were thinking if we got very lucky, we'd have one of our five that would come out. And we've had two, which has you know, been really lucky for all the That's Harrison and Noel, is that right? Yeah, Harrison and Noel. Um, Noel, sorry. Yeah, no, no problem at all. So Harrison got out first. Uh, he spent 19 years inside. And uh, we filmed him. We were there with him the day he got out, the day he saw his family the first time. And uh, we've been with him for, I want to say it's almost two and a half years now that he's been out. And he's gone back to school. Uh, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting. I was talking to him a week after he got out, and he was talking about the lack of pay phones uh, on the street. When he went to prison, there was pay phones everywhere. And uh, he had go- as part of his parole process, had to take certain classes and everything on the outside. And he'd finished a class up and decided he was going to walk to a payphone, call his friend for a ride, and then go home. And he walked two miles home instead because he never found a payphone along the way. And and the film, let's swing now talking to creatively. The film um, is, uh, it's not complete yet, so obviously we'll discuss that business side in a second. But mm-hmm. the film trailer kind of grabbed me because... Uh, I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting, people that are life, lifers. The thing that just totally grabbed me to the point that I, I couldn't um, imagine not seeing how this came out is, mm. is the twist in the story. Can you, do you want to describe that point, which you couldn't have known about going in? And Yeah, absolutely. Well, so basically, uh, Noel Valdivia, who's uh, the, the gentleman you're referring to, uh, actually got himself out of prison to begin with. So he was inside uh, for 30 years, and uh, he, in that time, became a jailhouse lawyer. He taught himself law, um, helped a lot of his fellow inmates actually get released from prison and, and helped them you know, fight injustice and what, things that were happening inside the prison that weren't supposed to be happening. And uh, what had happened to him is that he had been denied parole for a reason that was invalid, uh, basically, he was denied parole because the parole board felt the severity of his, of his original crime was too bad, um, which is essentially retrying him for an, uh, with a new sentence. Uh, the parole board is supposed to just decide if you're ready to leave or not, and they decided that he should have been sentenced to a longer term in the first place, and that's not technically legal. 
And so he uh, appealed their ruling and won, and won the appeal, and it was actually released on his own recognizance uh, because of that legal action. And um, so that, that happened after 30 years in prison, and he spent the following year outside, uh, actually you know, met somebody, fell in love, uh, I believe was even planning his wedding, and then there was a Supreme Court decision that reversed uh, the, his court decision where basically he found out that he was going to have to go back to prison. I just can't begin to imagine what that would be like. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was definitely a shocking, a shocking moment for all of us. And it's, there's a real tightrope here, I think, uh, morally, creatively. Uh, there's this central question that we, we talk about posing in the film, this idea of whether or not redemption is possible. Uh, I mean, all of these men that we're following have committed crimes and, and done things that are really, in a lot of ways, unforgivable. And um, the, the, the thing we're trying to explore in the film is whether or not it's possible to be forgiven for unforgivable acts. And so there's a, a tightrope we're walking with this case, you know, really in particular, where, you know, if ultimately Noel, you know, it's decided that Noel has to go back to prison, if that's, if that's what happens, then the reality is that, that is what should happen. Like, he did kill somebody, you know, he did a thing that's unforgivable. And so it's, I guess, filmmakers, it's sort of irresponsible, I think, to play a sympathy card with him. But then at the same time, it's incredibly shocking, you know, incredibly dramatic. And, and of course, you know, me personally, having spent six years of my life with intimate contact with him and gotten to know him and really, you know, a lot of ways become a good friend, uh, you know, it's, it's shocking when that sort of thing happens. Look, it is a complicated issue, which, of course, you know, is exactly why somebody should make a documentary about it. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly, from a from what limited amount I understand about the the system, you know, it's held up in a, in the sort of the principle of the um, entire prison system that the possibility of reform and parole, the possibility of getting out, is an incredibly important thing. Mm -hmm. And that it isn't just about putting everybody in jail and throwing away the key. Though I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, comment on the fact that the U.S. does have an extraordinary high rate of uh, incarceration of its own population. And so oh, as yeah. an outsider looking in, uh, your jail system seems, um, I don't know what the word is really, um, <laughs> worthy of study. Yeah. Worthy of study is, is very well, very well said, sir. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, worthy of study from the inside looking in also. Uh, I mean, the realities of the situation are very scary and, uh, there's a lot of data and a lot of information that I think as a general public, most people in America actually aren't aware of too. And it's all stuff I wasn't aware of when I started this process. I, you know, in California in particular, we have a 70% recidivism rate. So, you know, six or seven out of 10 people that leave prison go back to prison. And like, you know, when, if you did anything else and were having that poor of a return on it, <laughs> you would stop whatever you were doing, you know, uh, whether it was a business or anything, it's like the idea of, of failing 70% of the time at, at what you're supposed to do is, is pretty crazy. And so, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a lot of problems with the system. And, and, um, I think at the center of the problem is just this idea that, that we, we tend to, um, dehumanize people in prison we, we we tend to think of them as monsters and and, and as evil people and uh i mean that's it's much easier to think of them like that and uh it's 
it's a lot easier to think, really, that's it. It's just a lot easier to think of them like that. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, it's much more complicated. They're human beings. They're human beings who have done something terrible. But 99% of the time, they're, they're human beings who've had terrible life experiences that have led them to that terrible action. And uh, I think we as a society have a more responsibility than we're currently taking on in terms of what we're doing with these people. This isn't a lot of just people sitting down against white walls and locked off cameras in headshot mm -hmm. interviews. Like you are walking around inside the prison, you're walking mm -hmm. around on the streets doing a lot of filming. Tell me about those occasions that you were moving. How much is this just off the shoulder? I and mean, how were you working from a cinematography point of view? Of course, yeah. So uh, in terms of just the specifics as a camera operator, cinematographer, like that side of things, uh, I'm always, the cameras, I want to say like, 80 to 90 percent of the time it's on my shoulder um and i and i am just roaming with the camera on my shoulder and kind of always prepared to look for something else and i i tend to leave the camera rolling i'd say the first first little bit of time we were filming i didn't do that as much i, I actually have more of a background in narrative filmmaking when i started this process of working on the film and i was very used to hitting cut at the end of a scene and, and very used to like finding a frame, making sure the frame had context and was saying something and then shooting that thing and then moving on to the next one. And uh, my, uh, my editor, after the, those first couple, couple days of filming, was chastising me, saying that there was like no, nothing extra. And, and she was used to, with documentary filmmakers, finding these little snippets in between takes and in between moments. And, um, and so I started... It was actually like a big learning process for me at the very beginning of it where I, I really started, you know, letting the camera roll and allowing things like little moments to happen where I wouldn't be normally looking for them and, and making sure that she had enough material to recontextualize and to, you know, cover for additional things and things like that. So, um, but just logistically speaking, on my shoulder, and if it wasn't on my shoulder, it's on a monopod, um, which I usually had slung over my other shoulder so I could just you know, whip it around and, and dock the camera quickly if we were going to be, because uh, typically we'd find somebody to talk to, uh, conversation would, would begin kind of organically. And then all of a sudden I'd find myself in a situation where I would realize I'm now going to be standing right here for the next like 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, so, you know, when that's, when that circumstance would happen, while uh, Tamara was asking a question or while there was a moment, you know, I, I'd, I'd swing the monopod around and, and land the camera on it and, and sa save, you know, what was left of my shoulder at that point. Um, so what is the end goal? Is it, a, is it a feature? Is it a documentary? Is it a TV show? I mean, what is it that you're trying to make? Our end goal from the beginning has always been to do a feature-length documentary, and uh, something that could be distributed nationally, you know, theatrically, or something that would play on HBO, um, some, something of that nature is always something that we've been pursuing. Uh, that being said, as the scale of this has grown over the years, and as we've sort of uh, pursued an ending and pursued a, a, a sense of completion with the story, um, you know, it, it's definitely evolved a lot. And there's a part of me that, that sees that this could be like a miniseries, you know, or, or, so, or something longer than, than just a 90 minute piece. But it, that's really something that we need to see once we get into editorial, uh, where, where we're at right now with the process is that we've been, you know, filming for six years, we have around 150 hours of footage and, um, a good chunk of that is, is logged, but it's not all logged. And, uh, so we, we really need to actually just sit down and spend 
several months with our eyeballs glued to the screen and, and sort of, you know, relive all these moments that we lived six years ago and, and see where we're at. So you've done, um, you've done uh, other things. You haven't been doing just this for six years. You have done yes. some other things along the way. Okay. So, so you're at this point now that you've got most of the film in the can um, mm-hmm. and you've now turned to Kickstarter to try and see if you can get um, community funding, which is not a dumb thing to do because a huge proportion of um, the actual money that has gone into Kickstarter over the time that it's been going, like the, whatever it is, four years now, I mean, you know, almost I think a quarter of it has gone to, um, has to film projects. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that also with the success that we've seen there, there's been a lot of people that have hit uh, Kickstarter. Was it an easy thing to decide to go? And I mean, it's been around for a few years. Why, why go now? Really because we're ready to now, uh, I think is the best answer. And also because it's, it's a new possibility. Um, that, that Most of our funding for the film has come either from private donations or it's come uh, from grant funding for social justice. Uh, there, there's very little funding uh, for documentary filmmaking. It's, it's such a risky enterprise. There's a lot of funding uh, once you have a solid rough cut available and we have a lot of people that are looking at us and interested in the film uh once they have see a solid rough cut of the movie but it's this tenuous thing there's so many people that go down the road we've gone down that don't make it you know back out of the road and so people don't like to invest too much in it um and unfortunately you know after that first year of production that we did uh the economy dropped and we were receiving most of our grant funds for social justice work with the idea that you know, that ultimately the film would affect the people in these communities in a positive way. And uh, when we came back after everything crashed, after Bernie Madoff, uh, we found out that all of these family funding institutions had had experienced huge losses in the downturn. And, um, you know, we would call up and say, hey, you, you gave us 50000 last year. We did this, this and that. It was wonderful. Do we want to talk about, you know, having the same amount or another amount? for this year moving forward. And the answer we got back was that um, that whole arm of the institution is gone and I'll be leaving in 30 days. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty traumatic, actually. Um, and so since then, we've, we've been able to continue fundraising and you know, we've, we've had uh, pockets of, of funding here and there come in. That's, that's kept us afloat in terms of our technical costs and you know hard drives and things like that. But it's very much been a, a labor of love uh, for both me and, and Tamara and, and something that we've, we've squeezed in on weekends. And, you know, whenever something that, was, that couldn't be missed was happening, I'd get someone to cover me on a job or whatever, so, you know, make it work. So I want to take nothing away from the social context of the importance of the project at that level. But at a filmmaking level, I mean, uh, sort of why do this? What's the next step for you? I mean, is this going to be working for you because it'll go into an awards sort of season and get your attention? Is it because it's, it funds the next project or is it some point along the way you've just decided that you've gone this way, you're going to keep going? I mean, as a filmmaker, <laughs> keeping away from the social agenda, which I totally um, in no way want to diminish, why do it? I, I think uh, all those things are, are the reason, honestly. I think that uh, it's a, I've put so much into this uh, personally over the years I've made such a commitment to it, to myself, also to these men. You know, I, I've I've become the friend of and made personal commitments to a lot of men who have a lot a lot of stakes in this. And so, 
I, I think that, that that driving force is a big part of it. Um, but of course, as a filmmaker, you know, as somebody who is trying to do good work in cinema and, and, and who believes in the power of cinema to affect people and to affect people's perspective and, and allow people to see the world in new ways, um, you know, I want to be doing bigger and better things. I, I want uh, to be pursuing work that is exciting. And whenever you do something that that has some profile or has some cachet, I mean, that, that definitely helps with the career. It helps move things forward. So absolutely. I mean, like... Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking to us. It, it's, um, yeah, it's a real gift. And, uh, and real, really sort of the best of luck with the project. I just want to see the film. Absolutely. Thank you again. I, yeah, it's uh, really appreciated. Thank you for that. Thanks, Jesse, for uh, getting in touch in the first place, actually, and just uh, bringing it to us, our attention. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and by yeah, my please means... Go, please go and consider um, backing it. Don't, don't be discouraged by my comments earlier. If you have a really good um, project that you'd like us to look at, we'd, we'd really happy to check it out. But we just can't... Um, <laughs> we can't promote every... Uh, there could be an entire podcast called yeah. well, there Promoting should be. Kickstarter. Why is there? Maybe there is. I mean, there is. Maybe That'd we should start cool, cool, actually. Maybe we should add a section to the end instead of this week's Twitter feed, this week's um, uh, Kickstarter. There's a lot of films that are funded through Kickstarter. That is true. Okay. Some more, a couple of bit. Well, that's sort of more software now, I think, basically, bits and pieces. And then a couple of little sort of blogs and Twittery things. Uh, okay. Before I can even shoot 6K. Uh, you can now buy a grain pass for six for six k. Um, this is uh, R grain. There's a few people, and I think there's also another bit of software which I'll I'll, I'll retouch on because they've updated it, um, letting you do this. But put a little bit of putting as stuff gets cleaner, and you know we're losing character in our footage, and I don't want to put on fancy kind of really overblown uh, cheesy effects, but just a nice level of subtle grain uh, can really help out really help things out and really just give it sort of a very nice uh, organic feel so do you our apply grain, grain to your work uh on and off yes really? uh i have yeah. not applied grain for ages now yeah on and off it, de- it depends on the final uh you know you probably might not see it necessarily for vimeo stuff but you know if you're going for anything bigger or a cinema work yes sometimes and depends on the original uh footage whether if it's shot very cleanly or if it was shot at night and and low light where there's a where there is sort of a little bit of grainy look you know a little bit of noise in there already i've Um, only used it for trying to match intercutting stuff right like intercutting pickups with you do it in effects all the time right you put grain over the top that's what i'm saying to 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 um when you're intercutting stuff back in, right? Like yeah. digital into... But then again, a lot of stuff gets shot digitally, so... Yeah. So this is full... Uh, this is uh, Grain. Now, I think the link is uh, com, and they have full-on scans. A lot of people are doing this, but these people are doing it, I think, quite affordably. Anywhere from 35 bucks to 99 bucks for um, 1080p up to 6K of ProRes 422 film grain plates shot at... Um, 29, 24p essentially, 35, 16, and and even Super 8, um, and yeah, that, that sort of just buy it and download it from their site. Very cool. Thanks guys for doing it. <laughs> 6k, I love it. I can buy grain for 6k. Yeah, because 6k yeah. is yeah, 6k is mm. the new 4k. 
Apparently. Uh, and the other piece of software I was talking about that has been doing this for a while, we have mentioned this on the podcast in the past, Film Convert. Uh, they basically just ping me during the week to let me know they've updated their very cool little uh, bit of software, which is Film Grain Emulation Software. This is not just a plate that you put over the top, uh, as I say we have mentioned in previous shows, but it's a very nice um, uh, way and clean uh, sort of a clean interface, a very nice sort of UI, being able to bring in footage and apply very natural grain and do a little bit of a color mix and um, and then spit it out. So bring in um, raw footage, uh, apply the look and export it and probably never go back to your original. Uh, but they've now added a whole bunch of new uh, profiles for, for Canon and I think Blackmagic and a few other sort of uh, profiles and uh, C300 Canon. Yeah, the C300 profiles. one's really... Useful. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the, from the lovely people at uh, Rubber Monkey Software. So that's filmconvert.com. Uh, it's about two ninety nine if you get the plugins for everything FCPX and um, Premiere and Motion and After Effects and things. But it's one ninety nine if you just after one particular platform. Hey, speaking of six K, yeah, as you were a second ago, and film grain as you are, and film emulation. Have you seen Star Trek yet? Shot on IMAX? No, I have not. Um, no, I'm, I'm waiting because my. Well, there goes that ready. rat hole. <laughs> Sorry. Well, uh, yes, we're just waiting for sort of everyone who's keen to see the film to sort of, you know, in the family to go and be together in the one spot to go and see it because it's. Uh, I took yeah. my entire horde of family fun seekers on the Is weekend. Good? I, we Saturday have been night. watching the first one, first of all, because Laura, my daughter, hasn't seen. The original. Uh, I was just watching it again, and it's astoundingly good. I forgot how good the original was. Next one, better. Really? Yeah. Okay. Saw it on the weekend. IMAX at one. My one of my kids declared, having Googled it, was the largest IMAX cinema in the world. I don't know if yes. that's true. Is it? Well, I thought it was Southern Hemisphere, but maybe unless I thought they it was closed Southern some Hemisphere, no, but northern ones or changed yeah. some northern. But ones. they've refurbed the cinema recently. They I thought they were going to knock it down. I seriously thought there was development no, no, they refurbed there it. to close for about. Uh, three weeks. Anyway, wow. um, so it's it's IMAX and it's it's IMAX in stereo. Luckily, I'd bought seats um, like ages ago, so I was like back row center. You, you can choose the seats when you book it online, right? Yeah. Had yeah. I not been back row center, yeah. I think I would really have not yeah. been. I I was. You know how you're a tennis match. You're like over here, then you're over yeah. there. Okay. I but was still doing cropped, that on, right. It's two, th- no, two, sir. two point four to it one. Pops eye. Yeah, they should have oh, it on IMAX. So you're losing something. Well, not if you if the border changes. Okay. You're using you're losing something if you sit in a normal cinema, okay. and they crop in the IMAX stuff. Okay. You know, the point is doing that sort of format change, like sort of Batman. I think it was. It was just so exciting. Okay. I wasn't paying attention, but I'm looking <laughs> left and right because the subtitles aren't at the bottom center. Uh, They're over to the left, all over to the right. And so as yeah. the characters are speaking, everyone in the room's like left, <laughs> right, left. Hmm, that sounds interesting. And um, yes, and there is a reason for subtitles. Can't tell you what it is because that'll be a spoiler. Don't. Yes. But um, uh, because uh, so this is not just a you know a two K thing no, up raised. We are dealing with a very different screening here. Yep, shot in IMAX, but it also converted. It was shot 35, wasn't it? No. With some IMAX, yeah. They shot some IMAX stuff. 35 and IMAX? Yeah. Okay. I I will check that, but I don't even need to check it. I've seen the shots of the cameras filming it. Yeah. Um, uh, I did not know that. 
Yeah, it's way cool. I did not I, know that. I, I'm not going to tell you anymore except to say that there is a big story coming out on FX Guide. So you better jolly well see it before uh, the US release because we're holding our stories till the US release. Right. And Yes, um, that's right because it's released early here, isn't it, for a real change. Because I think the, the normal perception is that, oh, it's out on IMAX, is that, oh, well, it's just, you know, the same old 2K DI from everybody else, but... Uh, just slapped on a bigger screen to make some money and keep that place alive. It's, but not always the case. No, sir. It's, um, the thing about it, this film, right, is that it does have less lens flares. I'm just going to say that, okay? So if, <laughs> you are, if you are lens flare shy like lens flares, of the first one, yes. then this is not lens flare central, which would be slightly of a problem anyway because, yeah. you know, let's face it, um, it's in stereo. Uh, Hey, so yeah, so I've got some interviews. I've spent a bunch of time at um, at ILM, and I recorded a ton of interviews. We were very generous, and so we've got a lot of stuff coming up on FX Guide. I'm saying this because I don't think we'll get the next RC out before the next FX Guide, and so we've got FX Guide TV, we've got audio podcast, we've got a really indecent, uh, indecent, we've got a really decent written story, not an indecent story, a decent story. Yes, um, so all of that's uh, really good. And if you are outside the US, you'll know it's um it's a cracker. Yeah, there you go, camera, IMAX. MSM uh, 9806 with Hasselblad lenses. Wow. There you go. Including okay. some red epic shots and some obviously 35mm stuff. Panaflex, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 35mm negs, 85mm horizontal, Vision 3, 200T, IMAX stock. Excellent. Digital intermediate 2K master form, IMAX, some source, some scenes. There you go. Right. Cool. Oh yeah, no. The IMAX version jumps to one four four to one versus two three five to one. Um, okay, right then, I'm there. Right. Please do. Glad I didn't see it then. <laughs> Why is that? No, because I would have gone and seen it at just a you know regular digital screening. Okay. Regular, regular probably two K DCP. There you go. Thank now, you. if you wanted to write something like Star Trek, <laughs> because you can't just go and shoot Star Trek. You should you have to write, write it first. Something. Let's Probably say you're wanting to sit script. down now and write down the new Star Wars episodes. Let's say you want to be the next JJ. Seven, eight, nine. Yes. Yes. Now, this is although I don't really sit down and do writing, which is probably what I probably should do more often than I do recording a podcast about gear to shoot with things that you write. Um, but Slugline is uh, from our, our good friend Stu Mashwitz. Uh, it's a uh, screenwriting app. And it's a very intuitive, very clever screenwriting app. And I have had final drafts sitting on my computer for a number of years. And that cost me, I think, 250 or so dollars. I was say, yeah, about it's 39 really nice. bucks. And this is far more intuitive, to, I think, to need to use. Um, Did Stu write this? I thought he was uh, involved in. I thought he was involved in developing this. Yes, it is. It's by Stu and someone called Clinton Torres. Right. There you well, go. I didn't even know Stu. I knew Stu had plugged it like he he yeah. you know, said it's cool uh not plugged it that's the wrong word he had commented on because he's been doing a lot of stuff on um screenwriting things for the last what, yeah. year or two right now i think this is really clever because it sort of gets out of the way the interface really is just here blank page and just type and the app is intuitive to work out that when you write int or x it knows that you're talking about you know like a scene heading and i'm going to get the terminology wrong because I don't know the difference between a slug line and a, and a heading and a da-da-da, but it, it will know the character names and it will sort of, basically you just 
get out of your way and just let you get on with the creative process of just brain dumping and just writing and the formatting it will intuitively pick up on it as you as you do the sort of as you sort of by by taking cues from what you type and then of course you can then sort of dig a little deeper in there and do annotations and notes and um uh memos to yourself uh, notes to self and 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 the like and then export it out to final final draft format if you want to and um and then go ahead and print in standard hollywood printing format and i think it's a bloody impressive for 39 bucks and i wish i'd sort of known you know i i think i'm sure that's what it is that's why i haven't written uh star trek 3 because um it's the screenwriting app. I just can't get creative with it. That's yeah, it I'm keen to try it. I haven't tried it yet. I um, my problem I found when I and again I don't do much stuff, but in Final Draft I got Final Draft so I can look at scripts and yeah. um, stuff, but rather than write them. But I have done some writing, and, and, and it's a little bit like secret squirrel business. Like you, you sort of feel conscious of what you're writing on, and you just feel like saying, "God, do I have to just deal with it this way? Can't I just get a blank piece of paper and just start writing? Just just write stuff down and just have that flow of consciousness." And I think this is feels like this is as close as you can get to that invisibility of the app, and just get that conscious, unconscious flow of of just creativity and worry about formatting later or it worries about it for you on the fly and i think that's you know it's the um it's a bit of a holy grail for anything in life that to have something be it app or camera or piece of you know equipment of any kind or just whatever. get out of the way and let just, you do it just let me do what the task at hand is and um yeah just uh, you're gonna the, the results will be all the better for it i'm sure so you know how you're not meant to write screen direction into a um, oh, screenplay, and they people do it all the time, or scripts I get as well. They start writing a whole bunch of stuff for me to interpret that I don't uh, really, you know, care for. Thanks very much, but yes. W- what do you mean? Well, just you know, write, uh, writing a whole bunch of you know screen directions and sort of directorial comments that when it really should be just keeping it simple and, and leaving a lot of stuff up to director's imagination. I think. Anyway, so anyway, I, my um, rat hole is I've been listening to uh, Rob Lowe's stories. I only tell my friends. It's an audio book of oh, his yeah. autobiography. Okay. I, I, uh, I really like autobiographies, and I thought yeah. after yeah. Tina Fey's, which I really enjoyed, Bossy Pants. I thought mm. I need another one like this. Yeah, I had some more serious stuff that I was going to get to, but I wanted. I was driving down south. Six hours of driving. Oh, is this the audible plug part of the podcast? No, no, it's not. It's not. I got no sponsorship coming. Don't worry. But anyway, this is a script writing thing. So anyway, so I'm listening to. You better make sure it runs for about fifteen minutes. Okay, it doesn't. Just shut up and I'll get over the anecdote. So listen. So I'm listening to Rob Lowe's book, right? His thing about it. Anyway, so apparently when he was um, he was playing golf with Mike Myers, and he started doing impersonations of Robert Wagner, and uh, the next thing excellent. so there the next go. thing that happens is he gets this phone call, he gets this phone call from his agent saying, "Hey, uh, can I send you this script over from Mike Myers?" And it was, of course, um, a rather rather popular film that Mike yes. Myers did. Who, it's a very good. It's very good. Um, it always makes me smile that that being number two or whatever it is. Yeah, but uh, what was really funny about it is in the script good. it wrote um, goes through time whatever, and in walks. This is in the script. In walks. Uh, younger um, number 
one. What is it? Number Younger one. Robert Wagner. Number yeah. two. As played by Rob Lowe. Like that was in the script. <laughs> it was like, yeah. he was like, it's one thing not to put screen direction in a script. It's another to actually put casting, casting decisions there. in the script. Yeah. He was like, well, I guess I'm playing this then. Oh, I know I mentioned it before, but it's a really good, I know we did the, the podcast by um, uh, the, the writer, shot? Martini Shot, which I just love. It is short, it's sweet, it's funny, it's clever, and it's, you know, from a writer's perspective, and it's really cutting and sarcastic and cynical and hateful of the Hollywood system. And, Do you know uh, what's really interesting, terrific. though? It's when you what get these people to read their own books or do that. Like, he's reading. Like, I love yeah. that Martini Shot. You put me on. Yeah. But you can tell he's a writer yeah. and he's reading his so writing. Um, what you yes. can tell when you have yes. someone like Rob Lowe doing, because um, I'm a huge West Wing fan, when Rob Lowe reads his own book, he's such a good actor <laughs> that he does all the characters in voices. And so right. I know that sounds really stupid, but he's like, and then I'm, you know, you listen to something on a Hillary Clinton, right? Well, she's not an actress, so of course her book comes out really interesting, but it's kind of stilted because it's a politician reading a book, whereas it's like Rob Lowe is really good at doing like Michael J. Fox impersonations. Anyway, just saying, you get an actor like Tina Fey or somebody that's really good yeah. at, that does a, one of those things. I find it's fascinating to hear how well they just deliver the lines. Yeah. Hey, um, well. Uh, one last thing, right, which is... <laughs> Two or three little quick little links and things. Okay, this is like just blogs and podcasts and just the um, flotsam and jetsam. Um, Cine Chopper is uh, Chris Newman. He's uh, Thanks to Fresh TV, actually, for bringing me to attention to this. I saw them interview him at NAB. Uh, he's uh, just a... He's a... Well, just a... He's a multi-copter uh, shooter. And... Uh, but he also has a really cool YouTube channel. Um talking about just his his gear running through modding the DJI Phantom little plastic fantastic quadcopter uh doing this FP, FPV flying which is first person video kind of thing where you put the goggles on and you go flying and you're not watching your quadcopter you're just watching the you know you're watching you're flying by vision really and almost um uh, you are the camera and just you know his hints and tips for hacking the 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 DJI Phantom and his gear for his larger quadcopter gear and you know the interfaces and bits and pieces and what radio he's using and stuff so very cool and a lot of how tos and how not tos uh dot com i think it is and also youtube.com/cinechopper how is it not cool. super lethal to be watching just what the chopper sees you're not going to see well, what the chopper is about to run into well, yeah, because, well, you can, I mean, if you've scoped the area and you know where the power lines and things that are probably a little bit hard to see with a standard deaf video feed, but, you know, you can see a tree and a building and stuff, and he's doing some pretty impressive flying for, you know, it's pretty, I mean, he did, he flies into a couple of trees and things, but that's just going looking for trouble. I mean, I don't see the danger if you're, I mean, if you can see, you can see where you're going. Right. The main danger is the fact that you're probably just going to vomit because you know your your eyes are moving and your vision is blocked with a video right. monitor you're wearing and you can't your body isn't moving. Right. So that's always a good nausea inducing thing. Right. Uh, but no, I don't. I can't see how it's not. I mean, this is not how you would fly a proper cine shoot quadcopter, octocopter, hex or whatever. This is more of a 
This is more. I mean, this is very big in the RC world, just for oh, people just doing f- for fun, more more for fun. Chris is doing are, great stuff. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I think oh my god, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're a one man band, off sort of this is the indie run and gun way yeah. of doing it versus the two person, one person flies, one person operates version, and particularly for the DJI Phantom, where the camera mounts are generally fixed, um, and you are just flying, you know, a, flick, a fixed, a fixed. I say gimbal, just a fixed, say GoPro or just a fixed fixed feed. You're not doing separate operating to flying, and you're not flying for a client or uh, a high um, high risk environment. Though we so, should say, Chris does a lot of exactly that. Absolutely, Chris does a yeah, lot of the yeah. proper two operator flying yeah. with big, you know, eight. Yes, blade that's rigs. what pays the rent. But he yeah. also has this, uh, yeah, you know, flight. So he knows, he knows and, all. He knows it all. Yeah, so it's terrific, but also very sharing, lots of cool little videos and a lot of mucking around. And it's very cool to see what is happening with this DJI Phantom thing because this is, it's very big in the sort of, um, in the multi-copter community as being a really good hacking platform. People are uh, hacking, putting new motors in it, stripping out parts and putting carbon, replacing parts with lighter parts, putting better props in. Um, there is some very beautiful um, um, gimbal, um, brushless gimbals for it. I mean, mainly two axis at the moment, but some very beautiful stabilized mounts for not a lot of money. Um, doing some beautiful stabilized work on off this little tiny little platform, and it's very capable for something that's six or seven hundred bucks. It's very impressive and very tempting. We did say that this was the thing in NAB this on. year, though, didn't we? We just said this yeah. was what we saw everywhere. Like it was yeah. the Oh, yeah. And the, the, the DJI booth was massive. And they have, uh, there's a video, I might try and put show note links, that there's a little gimbal that they have developed, which would be a few hundred bucks. And there's plenty on eBay of um, little, little two-axis um, two brushless gimbals that are faultlessly stabilized, beautifully stabilized uh, little mounts. And they are tiny, mainly for GoPros, but it's not very long before we can start seeing... Um, I don't know, I think there's possibly you could see um, like NEXs or you know maybe even the um, Blackmagic pocket camera. You know, on these little on these little things, maybe it might be a little bit too much weight for for the DJI, but um, maybe maybe the maybe the GoPro four when they um, improve things even more, we're going to see. Yeah, the, the 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 GoPro is really good at the moment. You know, two point seven k image with if you put the Pro Tune on it, it's not not a, not a bad image, and and then oh, it's you, way better than the two, isn't it? Oh I yeah, mean, it's low then you stabilise that image yeah. with with a gimbal or in post. It's pretty impressive for you know for the odd for the odd like an insert shot for a doco or you know for just or for just for just simple run and gun projects or even for quite big stuff where you don't want to have it's the sort of travelling version of of having the big big quadcopter rigs if your budget or your you know you're sort of shooting for your own project or even if it's just a a small low budget thing you can get some very acceptable easily edited in footage for i don't know 1500 bucks or a grand or so with a with a gimbal and a gopro and a uh, and a and a and a uh, a little bit of training and a a will to risk risk it all 
and a will to risk risk being arrested or grounded or um, crashing into um, humans. You know uh, the I, movie. Okay. Yes. I don't think we've said this on the show, but uh, one of my team here uh, mm. actually found a Chinese version of that. Yes. That was done several months yes. before the movie at. Um, yes, there was. But that, once you dig a little bit on, if you dig dig a little bit for three axis uh, brushless gimbals, it's interesting how many people were working on similar. I mean, you know what the the guys at Free Fly have not reinvented the wheel necessarily but no, they've they made a really big wheel brought it to market m- manufactured it i mean there's, there's a lot of sort of similar tech around but for nothing that could certainly cope with putting an epic on nothing that can cope with um nothing that's built to the standards and and is ready to go uh like like the movie is but yeah the technology is sort of out there but just not built and amped up to the scale you need some really serious motors to and none of this stuff's really off the shelf you need some really serious motors to be able to push a um yeah, keep a, a a epic with a with a bulky prime lens on it and keep and focus motors and uh video transmitters and batteries to run it all uh there's very little that's that, that there's certainly nothing in existence they certainly took an idea and 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 expanded it for for our use, but yeah, there is a bit of low end. There's some low end, um, poor man's movies out there for sure. This but wasn't a poor man's movie. This was, in fairness to the guys in China that did it, mm-hmm. a smaller implementation of exactly what we're talking about. Yes, right. I don't because I really hate to sound in any way like these guys were anything but pre movie. There's there's date stamped proof that this was out you know a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was not, as you say, designed, polished, and presented like Moby. So I think Moby's great. I don't take anything away from them. But just that, you know, yeah. But we also shouldn't imply that these guys are the poor man's Chinese ripoff because they're absolutely not. Yeah, no, sure. But yes, there's there's definitely a lot, a lot. And even at NAB, as we mentioned, there were, was two or three other sort of similar, but in no way, <laughs> not in the same league as Moby, but there was definitely existing alternate technology there at, at NAB. But And I'd also uh, say that Moby was helped enormously by just one of the best video yeah. releases in history. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, and it's it's done right. You know, it's, so it's been right. built right. A lot of the other things we saw were, uh, I don't know, not not good, not ready for prime time. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting technology, and I'm sure it won't be the last we see of the Chinese movies. movies. Hey, um, finishing out the show, we've just got a really interesting Twitter link this week that you came up with, which uh, I was unaware of. Um, yeah, well, Vintage Lenses, uh, well, Vintage Lenses for Video.com is a very cool little website. It's um, Vintage underscore Lenses on Twitter is a good person to follow. Uh, if you want to have your feed flooded with uh, links to really cool bargain, vintage, unusual, quirky, Russian, etc. glass, um, uh, this website is doing uh let me just get back to the link there but he's doing reviews of um of old glass and how it can be used in dragging kicking and screaming to to modern 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 cameras 
Um, lots of interesting reviews of old, old, weird vintage glass, and uh, and also links on the Twitter feed to to stuff as it comes up for sale. So, not just hey buy this, but it's also tests that they've done to uh, see how good this stuff is. There's a lot of interesting, very cool glass out there, as I will uh, discuss next uh, episode when I have a great chat with uh, Richard Gale from uh, Dog Shit Optics, uh, who are doing exactly that, taking some vintage glass and then some, uh, going, going, uh, taking it up to uh, 11 and ripping the things apart and doing insane things that you should not do with a beautiful piece of glass. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in depth next episode. Uh, when hopefully yes. you'll have one of hopefully your lenses converted. Hopefully I should have something that's been, uh, yes, been shit on. Can't wait. That's not then. spelt that way, right? No, S-C-H-I-D. No, I'm not swearing. S-C-H-I-D-T. Yes. Uh, anyway, and uh, yeah, so links in the show notes to all of this stuff. Um, subscribe to the Martini Shot. And uh, please email us at, I think it's the rc at fxguide.com if uh, you've got thoughts or comments or ideas for shows or stories. Yes, and as I said earlier in the show, I'd love it if you guys, if you felt like it could get behind Life After Life, the documentary. Uh, we have no interest in it at all. We didn't even know the filmmakers until uh, they approached us about this project. Um, but yeah, just I think it's a really, really good uh, project if anyone feels that they can get behind it. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much, Jace, for being on the show as always. And thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, if you want to uh, check out more, including the uh, quick video um, tease with uh, Jesse, which is on FX Guide, the show notes, which is on FX Guide as well, um, please just head over to the main site. And, of course, uh, Jason, people can follow you on Twitter as... Yes, you can follow me on Twitter as Wingrove or go to my website, wingrove.tv, where my reels and all that sort of stuff are because I don't do this for a living. And you are... Mike Seymour. I thought we'd met. <laughs> I'm at Mike Seymour. Thanks. On Twitter. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. See you. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.